Welcome to All Road 65 Max Radio, where the road ahead gets brighter as we journey toward truth, traveling through our dreams and inspiration into a new reality. It's time, and your ticket is waiting. All aboard All Roads Lead 65 Max with Pamela Henderson. Greetings. Thank you for joining me on BBS Radio, All Road 65 Max. I am your host, Pamela L. Henderson. My focus is my mission statement to help create a quality of life through social growth, inspiring jewels to become leaders by establishing partnerships with entrepreneurs, corporations, donors, sponsors, volunteers, the community, and abroad. Please join me every other Tuesday at noon on BBS Radio, All Roads, 65 Max Radio. My special guest today is Ms. Jane Lee Rankin. At age 37, she receives news that her that appends her life. She's pregnant. Jane is cancer survivor of 18 months in remission. Her boyfriend won't commit, and her father is unsupportive. When she decides to raise the baby by herself, Jane feels the scornful glances and judgmental whispers of her conservative hometown. Armed only with a dream and a toddler, Jane marches into Banner Elk, North Carolina, a place where she knows no one, to start an alpaca farm. As a novice first-generation farmer, Jane faces nature's most potent setbacks from disastrous weather events to attacks from predators, and yet she forges on. At Apple Hill Farm, Jane trades fear for freedom. She trades disdain for dignity. She learns that her connection to animals is more vital than she knew. And with bravery and persistence, she creates a home, a farm family. At last, I want to say thanks again for giving me this interview chance, Jane, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. <laughs> yes. So where, where are you located now? You're still in North Carolina? I'm still in Banner Elk, North Carolina, on top of a mountain. <laughs> really? Oh, I know that's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Yeah, God's country. God's country. Yes, yes, it is. And how's the weather? It is uh, forty-five degrees today and sunny, and we have snow coming in this afternoon. So we're expecting Ooh. snow tonight. So yeah, we're in. We're at forty-three hundred feet. The farm is so we get tend to get the snow when we get snow. Usually, the prediction is snow above three thousand feet or more snow above 3,000 feet. So we're expecting snow tonight. Yes. Yes. How interesting. I know that is beautiful. Well, I have a lot of questions and I let me first state that I am totally inspired by you. You are a hell of a woman and I have to just state that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so Jane, if you don't mind me asking, here you are, cancer survivor. 18 months in remission. 
Is that 18 months from now or that was a while ago? That was when I was 37. So it's a while ago. My son's 24 now. So that was a while ago. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, that's what we can say, right? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. So where was I? I just had to ask you that, but okay. So now I had to ask that question because I feel in my heart that overcoming something such as a disease or like having a car accident or something that's really traumatizing to us is our story, right? Can you tell me about this horrific journey when you did have cancer and how you had overcame and what was your determination to live? So my determination to live was I was really young. So I was 36, 37 when I was diagnosed with cancer. Um, It was breast cancer and it was before I was old enough to have a mammogram to put it in perspective. And right. So, cause they start mammograms at 40. So it was really, and even though the tumor was quite large, which put me in a higher risk category, I didn't have lymph node involvement and I had a really good team of doctors around me. So I was pretty positive and I'm a very positive person. Even going through the worst of things, I'm pretty positive. I'm going to have my down days, but I'm, I'm pretty positive natured. So, and I was very faith-based. So, and I was in the throes of publishing a book when I found out I had cancer and I put that off for a little bit before the book finally came together and came out into the world while I sought treatment. Um, But it was, I was very faith-based. So it was, although when I look back on it, it's like, wow, I went through that. I don't feel like that was a super traumatic experience. Isn't that interesting? That is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. And that's rare. Probably. Because you know, just, yeah, it is. Honestly, I remember thinking, I remember thinking, because I would go to book signings that were cancer, they were um, the fight for the cure and those kinds of things There were events that they were raising funds for breast cancer. And I remember them saying that it was the war against cancer. And I remember thinking, you know, actually, cancer is really quite a gift because it, it brings you to your knees and makes it obvious what's important and all of those things and brings faith in even stronger. So for me, cancer was really a gift and a turning point, not a trauma. Oh, bless your heart. That's a good way to look at it. That is a good way to look at it. Wow. You are the founder of Apple Hill Farm, an award-winning first-generation farm in the mountains of North Carolina. How did you come up with that name? And what what inspired you to start this farm? So the inspiration to start the farm is a much better story than the, the inspiration for the name. So the road that we're on <laughs> is Apple Hill Road. So okay. I said, hey, let's call it Apple Hill Farm. <laughs> I didn't think very long about it. It was not 
Not now the inspiration to start the farm was a whole other thing. So I at uh, so I went ahead obviously and had my son um when I got pregnant and when he was one he and I went to the Kentucky State Fair and I met an alpaca and time stopped. Okay. I fell in love and thought that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise alpacas. So flash forward 6 months later I had the dream had morphed into I was going to raise alpacas on a mountaintop. I wasn't sure where or in the mountains. I wasn't sure where. And we came to North Carolina to look for property. And I kept the voice in my head that was saying, you are absolutely stark raving mad to leave whatever support system you have as a solo mom and move to someplace where you know nobody to do something you know nothing about. That voice... <laughs> was answered with this very clear answer, which was, if it's the right thing to do, I'll find the piece of property I can't say no to. And we found this property. And we found this property. And so here I am, 20 whatever years later, we moved in 2001. um, And it was a property that wasn't really a farm they were raising. I mean, it was, it was a an abandoned apple orchard and an old Christmas tree farm that had been let go. So mm-hmm. we then turned it into a farm with animals. So that meant fencing, it meant barns, it meant lots of construction and and slow work that we did over time. So that so was you- the beginning of the farm. Wow. And so how many animals do you have? So I don't add them up. No. Overwhelmed. <laughs> But we have <laughs> we have nineteen alpacas and we okay. have five llamas. We have nine donkeys, or maybe eight donkeys now. Wow. Eight donkeys. We have close to twenty five goats and livestock guardian dogs. We have four of those. Um, we now have seven, eight cows, and a couple of pigs and a couple of horses and chickens. Wow. So a lot of animals, but that's why I yes, don't do because I'd be overwhelmed. Yes. <laughs> yes, you would. So tell me now <clears throat> you have your son. What is it like to live with and care for so many animals daily on Apple Hill Farm? It is amazing. Number one, it's um my days start with the dogs that live in the house. They usually are the first to want to go outside. The roosters okay. have done the next thing to sound the alarm. And you got some roosters. We got some roosters. I love my roosters. Mm-hmm. And then the donkeys are the next ones to talk. And they honk <laughs> from their <laughs> from their barns. So it's a beautiful way to wake up. And I'm up on top of the mountain yeah. so I can see the sunrise if there's a visible sunrise. It's a beautiful way to live. Beautiful. I bet. I bet. I'm, I'm nature driven myself. I mean, you can put me and have me a little little house on a little land, as long as I got a little water and serenity, yeah. a little yeah. bird chirping, let me yeah. know, hey, I'm living, I'm good. Yep. Yeah. And it is, it's such a, it is such a reaffirming life thing to live out in nature, I think. Last night, so last night, here's a classic example, last night at midnight, The livestock guardian dogs are all barking, clearly barking at something. The donkeys are going off because there's something going on. 
And I was like, it's 12 o'clock. And I'm like, eh, kind of tiptoed out on the deck. And I shined my flashlight where everybody was focused. And there were seven sets of eyes in the woods. Now, I have no idea what they oh. were, whether they were a raccoon or I'm not sure. <laughs> there were seven sets of eyes staring back at me. I hope you got a rifle. <laughs> You got a no, rifle? No, oh, and I shoot it anyway because I didn't know what it was. I would not. It could have been a fox or a set of foxes or who knows. And there's, but there's something about living on land and being in touch with what's happening in nature, right? Like I can tell you what phase the moon's in because I see the moon on a daily basis. I can tell you what time the sun rises, all of those things. And I think that that's one of the things that a lot of us have lost touch with because we live in a city and we don't necessarily look towards the horizon when the sun comes up. We don't think about it because we're living our lives and we're busy and our schedule isn't based around nature, right? So mm-hmm. we're very, very attuned to nature. It gets warmer in the winter and then it gets colder. We get acclimated to the cold. It gets to be a day like today and I don't wear a coat because it's 40 degrees and it's winter. And I'm used to it being 25, not 40. So things like that, that are very natural that we, I think a lot of us have lost touch with. Yeah. Wow. I still can't get over it. Let me try to go outside and see seven eyes. Okay. So, I mean, what was your reaction? What did you do? Did you just go back? First of all, I was talking to him. I'm like, and so I saw the first set and I'm like, who's out there? I mean, I and I was not afraid because I was far enough away. They weren't close to me. Right. It was across. Okay. I have a really high powered flashlight. So it was really far away. But okay. it was it was like and I was trying to figure out what it was. I couldn't quite tell. And then the more I talked, the more eyes appeared. <laughs> anyway. Bless your heart. Anyway, it's good. It's really good. And I think it's part of what we as human beings are hungry for right now. And it's one of the reasons that our farm has become so successful is that we are hungry for that. And so the chance to go and walk around a farm, even for 45 minutes to an hour on a tour and interact with nature and animals is something that's really soothing to the soul. That is so true. That is so true. So I just do. I know I'm still stuck on that on on, on those eyes. It's okay. You know what I mean? So you see these eyes, and you start talking to these <laughs> eyes. And did they go away? What did they do? Just they started moving off. They started moving off, and then once they sort of moved away, the dog stopped barking and the donkey stopped honking. And okay, and then I okay. went to bed. And then I went to bed. Okay, okay, that's good to know. Yeah, because with all the strange things. That are going on. I mean, in Miami, they're showing now some of this. I know too far fetched, but some of the things that they are showing, like in Miami, would look like aliens walking around and just going in your backyard and you know seeing them on the street. Never occurred. To, never occurred to me it was aliens. I knew it was wild critters, so I wasn't wild critters. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, you know they got all these different videos out, and I, know. I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like we got. I'm like I was telling my husband we're going to be cowboys and cowgirls in a minute. <laughs> well, we joke. We joke around here. Not 
Yeah, we joke that you should never shine your flashlight into the woods because then you can see all the animals that are watching you. And that's yes. what exactly what I did. So, Absolutely. Yes. What was the most difficult moment while starting on this journey of raising alpacas? So I think the the probably the the most difficult in some ways was the beforehand and taking that step into the unknown. Um, there was a lot of blind faith in there. I mean, I had fallen in love with alpacas and then just grabbed onto that as my dream. I'm going to raise alpacas. I didn't really think much about it, right? Like I wasn't studying it and whatever, because I was raising a toddler. I barely had time to take a shower, much less think about it. Right. So, so um, but but I think it's that first step that sometimes the hardest is like, saying, I'm going to go see if I can find a place to live. And I'm going to see it, you know, and pushing through that initial resistance, which was, like I said, was me saying to myself, are you stark raving mad? You are leaving, you know, everything you know to go someplace where you don't know. So that was, was a difficulty of one sort. And then there was, you know, we got here, we went through, we went through lots of challenges, even on the way to having alpacas. And I, in writing this book, Farm Family, as I went back and big, like un, sort of unpacked what had happened and how it had happened, looked at journals, figured out dates, I didn't go visit an alpaca farm until after we had built a barn. Probably not really? the smartest thing in the world to do. Right. <laughs> And built the barn before you go to an alpaca farm. But I was just so clear that that's what I was going to do. You know, I had this great faith and this, and, you know, as I went along, it just seemed like the thing to do. And, and I had said at one point, if I'm going to raise a child alone, I want to find something to do that feeds me while I'm raising him. And boy, did I hit that one on the head because he was this precocious child that was all over the place. We would stop at Cracker Barrel on the road to eat, you know, like as we were driving somewhere right? and he'd be going around and inviting people to come to our table. I mean, he, <laughs> you know, at two years old, he was just like this very precocious kid. So right. it was a perfect place. A small town on land was the perfect place to raise a child. And he got to grow up as I was starting the farm or as we were starting the farm and he got to be a part of it. And what a yeah. gift. And I didn't do it. It wasn't like, I'm going to do this because this is going to be the best way to raise a child. It just happens to be one of the side benefits was that he got to see all of that. And so often, especially as single parents, when we raise children, we're often off at work and they're at daycare or school and they don't see right. it as we do. But he was part of all of that. I mean, he, he, Got to celebrate the wins and the losses with me, which I sometimes questioned. Was it a good thing? Because the losses were often animals' lives, right? And so right. he was there when they were born and he might be there when they died. And that was, talk about a space to hold. That was a big space to hold. And he is, at 24, he's like bomb-proof. He is the most steady, Eddie. He's the <laughs> He can handle anything. He's just like, yeah, yeah, we got this. We're good. We got this. Right. Right. Wow. So what made you even get other animals? 
So we started, so we started with alpacas and the idea was that we were going to raise, breed and sell alpacas. And as part of that, we were going to go to shows. That sort of was sort of the alpaca world. And so at three, four, five, the alpaca shows were something that you could go to. It was very family friendly and it was okay if he wandered and everybody took care, you know, like everybody watched out the kids and he was redheaded. So they all knew he was mine so so we would go to these shows and so i mean there's you know an alpaca is a pretty cute animal but cuter than yeah. an alpaca is an alpaca with a four-year-old walk in it you know like with red hair i mean cutest thing you've ever right. seen so um so we were doing that and six months into owning alpacas we had them all back here at the farm we had a mountain lion attack and I had taken him to school at a preschool and come home. I'd gone to a meeting and come home and the fencing was destroyed. There were bodies scattered. It was awful. And oh. we lost four out of five alpacas. Not that day. We lost three out of five alpacas that day. One died later. And it was it was horrible. And and if one hadn't lived, I don't know if I would have stayed in the business, but I had one that lived. And so therefore I was still in the alpaca business. And because I knew the one that was with him was about to die, I brought him one to be with him. So then I had two alpacas. And so after all of that, as difficult as it was, we started over with alpacas. We had insurance money on them and we started over. And I mean, it was a harrowing experience. And I, I bought animals from a lady who was less than a mile as the crow flies. She had never had a problem. Nobody in the area official agreed that they existed even. So nobody had, you know, we weren't, had no preparation for it at all. And we became, after that happened, we became a story, right? And you know how stories travels. So in part of our restarting, we added donkeys on the outside of the field. We added llamas on the inside of the field. And because everybody agreed, whatever it was, was coming back. They didn't agree what it was that had attacked the animals, but they agreed whatever it was, knew we had food and they would be back. Those animals would be back. So because of that, I said, okay, we're buying meat goats and we're putting them up the hill unsecured. And if they come back for food, that's my offering. And we've restarted. And then we became story. And so people heard it in town. I live in a small town and they drove up the driveway all the way up to the top of the mountain at the end of the gravel road. And they were here and they would start asking questions. And then that was when we turned the whole farm turned and we turned towards agritourism and inviting people to the farm to hear the story of the farm and to educate them about the animals. So it was, it ended up being like the next chapter would not have been how I would have planned it. Maybe we would have gone there anyway. I would definitely not have put mountain lion attack in that. You know, I would have not never planned that, but it was what happened next for our farm. And it's part of who we are now. And it's part of our success right now. Agritourism is our highest line of business. We make the most money from that. We have a store on the property to serve the customers who come. And we sell alpaca products. We sell yarn made from our animals. So you can go, when you come take a tour on the farm, you might meet. Yes, I'm coming. 
<laughs> you I'm might sorry. Like and Aspen <laughs> and, and tequila or one of the other Bambi, one of the other alpacas. And then when you come in the store, we have their yarn from the animal mm. hanging and we keep it all separated by animal all through the process so that when you buy the yarn, you're just getting Bambi's yarn or Mojo's yarn or somebody else's yarn. And we wow. do the same thing with the Angora goat. So we switched at some point about 12 years ago, we switched into Angora goats, which are a fiber animal. So you shear those just like you shear the alpacas to get the fiber off. Only you shear them twice a year. And the product that they produce is called mohair. So we have alpaca fiber and we have okay. mohair. So we have what's mohair. What's mohair mohair? Is, the, is the fiber from the goats. Like the okay. old mohair coats. I don't know that you ever were around when they had mohair suits and coats. They used it for men's suits and um, outerwear coats. And they're really warm. It's very warm. Anyway, so that's, we have yarn from both the alpacas and the angora goats. And then we sell other fiber products that we put together here on the farm. So. Wow. So I can, when I come, not only am I going to get a tour and I can, I could go shopping (laughs) and I mean, my God, you have a spa too? No, we don't have a spa. don't have a spa. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> Just for the animals. Just for the animals. Now, do you get, did you give them all names? Or they all have just... names. They all have names. They yes, all... ma'am. They all have names. That's Can how you, you tell me some family of is they have names. So we have yeah. all the alpacas have names and the Angora goats have names. And we do names by sort of a family. So for instance, we have um, an alpaca named Nutmeg. And her, right, so she came to us with that name. So her name is Nutmeg, and her first baby was Vanilla. And then she had a baby, and her name is Cinnamon. And then the next Cinnamon, okay. she had is Chai. So it's all sort of in the spice family, right? Yeah. So we, we do things like that. So we try to, because after a while, it gets really hard to name them. The goats are the hardest because they can have two at once. So... We try to, so for, we had Dick and Jane at one point. And then when Jane had a baby, it was Hansel and Gretel because she had a girl and a boy. So okay. we had storybook names. So we had Jack and Jill and then we had, right. So, <laughs> so <laughs> anyway. Right. <laughs> that is so cute though. That is yeah. so cute. People love it. Do you have horses too? Yeah. Do you have horses? We have two horses, two horses. Luna and Chance. Wilma and Chance? Luna. 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 Yeah. Okay. And Luna was born here and Chance is a rescue. So Luna's mom was a rescue. She's, she's already passed on, but we still have Luna. And then we got another rescue for her named Chance and they're best of buds. They love each other so much. They're so cute. So really now I must say, I I do want a horse and Uh I can ask you a couple of questions. Um, I plan on when I move, I want to have enough room to have, you know, my horse have a little ranch. Mm-hmm. So is it better to get a horse when they're babies or already? Depends you know, on, do you want, do you want to ride or do you just want to have horses? No, I want to ride. 
you want to ride, I would recommend there's a lot of work that goes into training a horse. So I would recommend getting a horse that's already trained because that can get really expensive and you can buy horses that are already trained. So I would, I would buy an adult trained to ride horse that you've ridden, you know, and you could work with them first before you bring them to your property. And of course they need a buddy. So they They need a buddy. Oh yeah. Yeah. They got to have a buddy, huh? Buddy. Yeah. So Mm. you get two horses and get two horses. What is the going price? Oh, I have no idea of a horse. No idea. No, in California would be very different. Are you, are you taking horseback riding lessons anywhere? Yeah. Over here by, uh, I live in Antioch. I don't know if you know where Antioch. Okay. And over here, which was before I even moved here, Brentwood and Oakley was all farmland. So we still have a lot of ranches and a lot of horses and everything. So I stopped by, I just stopped my car one day and I seen this ranch and I, I was like, you know, look at those beautiful horses. So I went up to the owner and I said, you know, what do I have to do to, I want to learn about horses. I explained to him that, you know, I want to own one one day and I want to ride. And he was like, well, you know, you could come by and you can feed them and, you know, pet them and get to know them first. Oh, the first day scared me. I got to be honest because he was They're big. Yeah, they huge. They big. Now. Very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. They are. But now we're friends. And so, yeah, we're friends. So I'm looking forward to um, starting to ride Uh and and everything. Is he he let you ride there? Does he teach riding there or? Yes, he does. Okay. He does. He said he's open on Sundays. Mm Mm-hmm. And a lot of the community goes over there with their kids and let ride or they take lessons and everything. So I'm planning on trying to work that out with my schedule here. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, that would be great, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into having horses. And I think the more more information you have under your belt with that, the better, the more comfortable you're gonna feel. Yeah. I do agree. Yeah. Yeah. And there's people that will help you along the way, right? There's always people to help us when we have a goal or a dream, right? There's always those people that will show up to help us. So it's not you as you are sitting in your chair going, okay, how do I get from here to fences and barns and horse on the property? It's going to be helpers along the way that get you there. Yeah, I do agree because I've been brushing the horse. Yeah. Feeding him and walking him. So that's been good. Mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah. I mean, I could just see myself. I'm like, I, I'll be up on my horse like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be a real ca- cowgirl, right? Yeah, real cowgirl. That's right. You'd be wearing cowboy boots and a hat. <laughs> Everything, right? <laughs> you are a author of a memoir, Family mm-hmm. Farm. Tell me about your book. I know we've been discussing it, but tell me a little bit more. So really the book is the story of starting the farm. So most of what we've talked about today. So Mm -hmm. I, um, 
at, when people started coming to the farm, we would do a tour and I'd be taking them on a tour and they would stop sort of halfway through the tour and kind of look at me askance and say, what, how, why did you do this? Like they were just, they were here and they were experiencing it and then they would kind of get it and they would go, now, wait a second, you were living in the suburbs of Louisville, Kentucky. How did, how did this happen? And so they would ask me and I would say, you know, that would take a book to answer. And at some point, it was 2013 when I had the idea to find a way to put it into writing. And I was going to, I started with the idea of writing just a nonfiction story of starting the farm. Very, you know, very dry, like the way we did this, right. we did this, and then we did this. And so I started taking classes on writing and, and nonfiction writing and those kinds of things. And I took this class called your captivating book. It was a great class. And the man was explaining that Jeffrey Davis, who ran it, was explaining the difference between nonfiction and memoir. And he said, you know, if you're writing a memoir, it's story driven. And so you're going to have an antagonist and a protagonist. And I went, you know, that feeling and you're like, yeah, right. (laughs) So, and I raised my hand and I said, what if your antagonist is reluctant? <laughs> yeah, really. And at that moment, it became memoir, and my father was the antagonist in the book. Oh, was he? Yes. Okay. So, and and so the book, the real surprise in writing the book. I don't know whether you do any writing, but the real surprise in writing is it. There's always gifts along the way, and the biggest gift to me in writing the book was the forgiveness that I had for my dad and the completion of that relationship because he died in 2003. So right after we moved here, he died. So anyway, so that was the gift of me writing the book. And, and so it's very story driven and it's written. I want it written, wanted to write it as that you come along with me on the journey. And obviously every meal and everything that isn't in the book it's just, it's just, you know, it's storied out as into the small stories that make up the book and lead to a whole conclusion. And the conclusion of the book is that the farm becomes the family so that Will and I together create a farm, which then becomes our family. Absolutely. Yes. I have written a book. My book is called Journey of a Sapphire. And I went through a very horrific time in my life when, you know, in 2006, my mother was diagnosed with carcinoma cancer mm. and she was given four years to live, but she lived like five and a half and she could have lived longer, but she didn't want to put a trait in her throat. So she said she refused to sound like a robot. But um, we had such a good time. That was my best friend. And then she became bed rested around 2010. Mm. And then I was faced with another horrific journey. My daughter was in a very bad domestic violence relationship. And she had her children removed from her home. Mm. Now, here I am, an entrepreneur. On my own journey towards success, I'm taking care of mom. And then mom became bed rested. So that required some very creative ways for me to move forward. And then I had to assist my daughter who had 
two children at the time. Oh, my goodness. So that was a two-year-old and a three-month-old. Oh, my word. Oh, my word. Did they come to live with you? They came to live with me for about six months. Mm -hmm. And I asked for help from the social worker. Mm -hmm. And asking for help was not good for me. Mm. Because the, the children were, both of the children, they both had two different dads involved. Mm -hmm. And they were the abusers mm. and the children were given to the dads and it just totally set me off because mm. I didn't agree with that. But because I'm just the grandma, there was nothing Oof. that I can do about it. Mm -hmm. But it was something I did about it. All right. On this journey, which it had taught me a lot, I had protested and mm. I gave. I have to admit, I gave everybody hell because it just totally destroyed my family. Yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah, I, I have to totally be honest. And one thing that I did do, I uh, I fought. I fought for 10 and a half years. Wow. Wow. 10 and a half years. And I watched both of my grandchildren regress. My granddaughter was adopted out. My grandson was losing his life. And so I had to fight for him. And finally, I did. I, I was uh, granted guardianship for him. And I think my takeaway with that was, and what I've learned, is sometimes the system tends to overreact when it comes to stating about what our kids have. So my grandson, when he left me at two years old, he was a normal child. Wasn't nothing wrong with him. Mm. But even though he regressed and some of the things that were happening to him was due to poor hygiene and care, mm -hmm. but they labeled him of having ADHD and some of these other issues. And it was very, very heartbroken for me. Mm -hmm. And um, when I did get custody of him, I fired everyone. <laughs> I fired everyone. I took him off of those pills they were giving him. And as of today, he's a 4.0 student. He's doing well. Oh, that's awesome. Totally handsome. I mean, I'm so proud of him. And um, yeah, so to me, wow. sometimes instead of always labeling kids, and believe me, my book is not only about the journey and all the obstacles and, and, and everything that I have gone through, but also it's a wake-up call for girls such as my daughter who need to take responsibility right. first for themselves and do not understand that when you don't, it affects mom first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. See, we're the ones that we're going to fight to the end, right? Right, right, right. And so then it becomes an issue, mm -hmm. you know? And right. so it will teach you, you will see all the lessons I have in that book of how to recognize behavioral problems. So that is what I teach. Oh, wow. Wow. Foundation. What a gift. What a gift. 
Yes. And you know, you know, I, I often, you know, as, as moms, we always worry, are they going to, you know, remember what we said? They can't mm-hmm. undo it. And your grandchildren can never un have you as their grandmother who stepped in. They will always have that in their lives to fall back on. And you have to remember that. I'm trying to. The, the Really what bothers me today is even though my rights were taken away from me as a grandparent. And I, I really, now that is the only thing I can say, Jane, that just sticks with me because I, I felt that I didn't deserve that. I don't I don't feel that I deserve to not to be grandma because I'm not the one that did any damage. Agreed. But you could have done so much better. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But she lives maybe 10 minutes away from me right now. We live in the same vicinity. Oh, that's wonderful. So I'm in Antioch. She may, from my understanding, she's in Brentwood or Oakley. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. But I haven't seen her. So oh. right now, today, she is maybe 13 years old. But I tell you, God works in mysterious ways. And I will see her one day and I'll be able to say hello to her. Right. And the heartfelt situation pertaining to what I do to help girls is knowing that, especially the ones that want to know their parents, mm-hmm. they want to know where they come from. Because it doesn't matter if you go into and get adopted, foster care. You right. always want to know where your roots come from. Right. And I think that's where we fail as a society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We can get attached to children. I mean, with girls, I get attached to them all the time. Oh, I love you. I don't want you to go. And I have an international program. <laughs> Yeah. And I offer them to come here to go to school and go through my program. They receive a certificate and I create jobs within my foundation. Oh, that's so wonderful. And I meet a lot of beautiful young girls. Those who come from well-to-do families with bad behavioral problems for brats and those whom have issues right. of not understanding the behavioral problems that they have to identify so yes oh that's so beautiful that's so beautiful and that's needed in the world today it's so needed so good for you for being there shining the light and not shutting down right i mean yeah just keep putting the light out there i am that's the reason why i had told myself i said i am going to be an international foundation Mm -hmm. because we need help. Our girls need help all over the world. Oh, yes. As you see. Yes. 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 So that's another story. So you have to come back for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I know I probably asked you, well, I have one. What advice would you give someone who has a dream to do something and would need to start over to fulfill their dream? Trust it. Trust it. Trust it. Trust the dream. Trust the dream. Trust the dream. They don't come up for nothing. You know, I mean, they don't. Your dream of having a horse isn't there for no reason. It's there. It's coming from somewhere and it's worth following. You don't always have to follow all the way through because it may not be exactly what you need or things may 
change, but trust it because how many people do we know don't have a dream? They don't have anything they're following. True. And if you have a dream, it's important to trust it. That is so true. Thank you so much. Yeah. What was the most surprising aspect of writing your memoir? One of the most surprising aspects of writing it was how clear memory is when we go back in and dig around. So there were a couple of scenes that I was writing where details came back to me that were so clear, so crystal clear. And I remember thinking as I started writing it, well, I'm not going to remember and how do I write this? And I don't want to make stuff up. Like, how am I going to remember what? And then as I would go through and I would write a scene, one of them was the scene when um, my father called me to tell me that my mother had died. And I could see this place on the wall where the paint was chipping and there was a paint chip and it had, I was in an apartment building that had been there for a long time, layers and layers and layers of paint, all different colors. And I could see all the color. I could name the colors. Another was when um, I was writing, these are both specific to my father. One was when I was writing a scene as he was dying and I was there in Louisville, he was back in Louisville and I'd gone back and was spending some time with him and fixing him a cup of coffee. And I looked at the bottom of the mug and I could see the words, the end in the bottom of the mug. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) There was, there was not. And so it was the stoneware mug, right? And it was Louisville. It was badly (laughs) pottery, right? And I actually had a set that I wasn't using. And I went down to where my set was and I pulled a mug out and sure enough in the bottom of the mug were the words, the end. And it's in every mug that they make. Wow. I was just like, Oh my goodness. It's all there. Right. And Mm -hmm. as I would write, not only were the details there, but so were the emotions. And so going back and writing them was a chance to then release the emotion write down the memory, write down the details and put it in writing for a book. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I remember writing mine. I was like, I I kept getting stuck Mm -hmm. and I had so much to say, but I was so proud of myself because on this journey, I was recognized by Queen Elizabeth before she passed. Wow. And I I received an award and my membership card, and I was supposed wow. to go to England. And I, that that touched me. Right. You know, because right. you hear all these stories, but I was recognized. Right. Wow. That's Queen Elizabeth. Wow. That's wow. big. That's huge. <laughs> that is huge. Right? Yes. That is yes. huge. That's I don't huge. care about anything else. but That's royalty. <laughs> that is royalty. Real romantic, unlike we have in the United States. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And I was recognized by the United Nations. Oh, that's fabulous. To become an ambassador for the United Nations as well. And like I said, through the journey from all the hardship and the obstacles, adversity, 
And here I am sitting talking to you and you inspired me because you also had gone through some obstacles and challenges. And look at you, you're a farm, you're, you have your own farm now. And I'm, I'm so, I can't wait to come. Yeah. And when, when is the best time to come? Anytime. We're open year round, anytime, except when it snows. I mean, it's pretty when it snows, but it's hard to get here when it snows. So well, I don't want to really come when it snow. I want to come when it kind of like, because I like the hot weather. <laughs> I like the in hot the weather. summer, then in the summer, and it oh, doesn't get summer? too hot. It doesn't get too hot here because we're no. up in the it stays cool. Yeah, but it's a beautiful area up here in the mountains. Okay. It's really special. A lot of small towns that if you go into them, you feel like, is it twenty years ago or forty years ago or what? Yeah, you know, like time has stood still in some ways. Right. So we have a mass general store in, in our little Valley Crucis area, and they still have a wood burning stove in the center of the store. And people sit around in the morning and tell stories and they sell everything at that store. Everything. It's the post office. It's the post, oh, office. post office. Okay. It's, all, it's the post office and the general store. And it's still, okay. it's then it, the floors creak. You walk through there and the floors creak and they sell. Coffee, I don't know what they charge for it now. When I first went down there, it was like five cents for a styrofoam cup. Mm. Anyway, just, but it's like time stood still. It's like walking back in time to another, another time when things were simpler. Right. Well, right behind me is this little city um, called Knightson. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like now their post office is in a house. So oh, there you go. It has that feel. That country feel and everything. And I remember when I was a notary public, but I lived in this little city called Pinot. So it would have taken me about an hour to get over here. Uh-huh. But I remember when I was a notary and uh, the lender that I was working for kept asking me to go to Nightset. And I tell you, I just kept giving them a hard time because I was like, like, that is hours away. I haven't even heard of any <laughs> nights in. <laughs> That's way up in L.A., I kept saying. <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> somewhere towards L.A. And when I got here and I did a note, I had a notary signing and it was in Knightson, which was not even three minutes, five minutes away. So I was cracking up, but the only thing I didn't like, and it took me maybe about an hour and a half to find the house because they have these mailboxes that you can find the mailbox with the address, but the house is way back yonder, way Ooh. over there. See, and you couldn't get in because you would have to tell them, right? Right. But, you know, that was that was very interesting. But yeah, Knightson is right behind us, but it's a lot of farmland and everything. Thing, but they kept it still old. I don't think they're going to allow any builder to come and build homes to make it more moderate. They want, they like it, the country living. Right, right, right. Jane, you are an advocate for farmers. You have taken a stance in leadership and involvement in the North Carolina Networking Association. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. So um, we have an association here for agritourism farms. So we agritourism, okay. Yeah, we teach and support farms that are, you know, so it's a farm that's already a farm, and they've decided to open up and allow people to come 
to experience the farm. So agritourism is people on the farm. So we do a conference every year and we do a farm tour as part of our conference. And then we do a farm tour usually in the summer as well, where we set out for the day and we'll go to five farms and we'll stop one place and have lunch and then have dinner someplace and experience different agritourism farms. So it might be somebody that has a corn maze and a pumpkin patch and then a wedding venue that we go to. And maybe one time we went to a distillery for dinner. So places that are farming and doing unique things that are examples of how people are opening their farms up for agritourism. One lady was an author and she had, she did a lot. She was an author and a teacher. She did a lot with um, middle grade books and she she created spaces on her farm for people to come and spend the day and interact with the animals. And then she had books for sale and things like that. So we, we see a variety of, sizes of farms and kind of farms so that people can get ideas and and just get out as a group because we're all doing similar things but often not together with people that are so like-minded and so we create experiences for our farmers to get together and connect and get to know one another and learn from one another there's lots of cross-pollination that happens absolutely yeah absolutely it's a great organization. And I, I'm sure in California, agritourism is really big. Although I think mm-hmm. for California, I was out there probably 12 years ago and the wine business really overshadowed agritourism. So that sort of took the focus as opposed to, you know, being a goat farm that was making goat cheese and you were open to the public. And it might be on the road to the winery and they'd be like, well, we can't open up. And I was like, yeah, you can. Put a sign out on the road. You'll have people here all day. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think that, and, and agritourism has grown exponentially in recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, here in North Carolina during COVID, our supply chain for food kind of broke down. And mm. there was a long period of time where you could not buy beef in the grocery store. And we're kind of at the end of the chain because we're up in the mountains. And so what happened was restaurants and farms opened up their markets and their restaurants to sell food. They couldn't serve it, but they could sell it. Sell it. Okay. So one of my farm friends who does strawberries, actually not in the mountains, but off the mountains that have a summer market, they opened their market up early during COVID when we were in lockdown and created a very small outside grocery store that people could go to. And they were able to divert food from restaurants because the restaurants weren't buying the food, but they had already ordered the food. So they had the food coming and being delivered to their store. And then they were selling it from there. They were selling everything from toilet paper and paper towels to meat and vegetables. And then they were a farm, right? So as we went into COVID, it was strawberry season and strawberries don't last that long. So they still had to get the strawberries out to the people. So, right. they use, you know, doing you pick and things like that to get strawberries to people. Wow, that was nice. That was yeah, nice. So there was a lot. There was a huge growth in local food in our area and in North Carolina and that probably across the country. I just know North Carolina more during COVID when supply chains for food kind of broke down 
and farm food became one of the top things. Like we have a local food hub that sells farmers sell their food to the food hub. And then you pick your food up at the food hub and that they had, they doubled their growth that year Mm -hmm. because you could literally drive up and they would put the box in your car and then you would go home and you would have eggs from my farm and vegetables from somebody else's farm and meat from somebody else's farm. So it was, it was amazing. And I think we all understood more about the safety of our food network when we went through COVID Mm -hmm. and how fragile it could be, how important it is. So, so agritourism took a huge leap as well because we were outside, right? So once the state opened back up, we were one of the safe places to go. You could come take a tour of a farm and be outside and it was an outside activity. So agritourism in general had a huge uptick. One of the first places people went to in the evenings was breweries and wineries that had outdoor facilities. Right. All of those, as opposed to a restaurant and inside venue, right? They could be outside. So anyway, so we, we had a huge growth during COVID, but we've before that have had huge growth and people are, people are very hungry for an experience of where their food comes from, the land Mm -hmm. out and being able to see some of that. So we've continued to grow with that as well. Wow. Yeah, that is, that is true. That is true. I was on your website. Oh, you You offer a suite of services that you say needs to fit like a glove. I love that slogan there. (laughs) So here I am. I'm going to apply. And you said once you feel that we're aligned, you co-create the platform that will amplify the visibility and showcase the book. Right. Right. So real quick, tell me just a little bit about that. I know we had enough for time, but. Tell me a little bit about that. About about supporting the book and getting it out there. So, yes, so the I'm I am out right now, sort of on quote tour with lots of um, lots of uh, workshops and conferences with the book, and so mm-hmm. I'm always looking for places that I can like join with somebody and do an event that the book's part of or speak. So I teach agritourism and I consult in agritourism. So there's, so there's that. And it's, you know, we will have people that are, have a farm come to us to help them promote their farm or help them develop where they're going to go with their farm all the way down to, if you come to our farm, We have woven wire fence, we have um, some barbed wire, and we have electric fence. So I can talk to you about the differences between fencing. I can talk to you about the differences between barns. So we do a lot of work with farms that are developing, as well as farms that are already developed and are opening for agritourism, and how to do that, how to get their insurance, where to go to get products, all those, how to design their day, how to sell their tickets, all of those kinds of things. And then as well, I'm doing a lot of stuff with the book and speaking and those kinds of things. So that's beautiful. Yeah. That is beautiful. Yeah. And doing interviews with great people like you. (laughs) Yes, yes. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to connect here because I have a lot of questions and I don't have any time, but I need to ask you because also when I move, I want a little greenhouse. I want to grow like I'm a vegetable eater and I want to have like cabbages, little tomatoes, uh-huh. everything a little easy, I think. But, you know, I want to get to know 
the proper way of farming. Right. You know, and growing my vegetables and the do's mm-hmm. and don'ts and everything. So yeah, me right. and you're gonna have to talk. Right. Jane, it has been a pleasure having you on my show. Do you have any last minute comments you would like to say or share? I think I'm good. Thank you. This has been so wonderful. What a great conversation. <laughs> yes. And connection. All yes. the way across the country. I know, huh? Isn't it amazing. And one more time, how can someone contact you regarding your services? So um, the main place to contact us is through the website. It's applehillfarmnc.com. And there you'll see connections to get to jump on and get into consulting or coming for a tour or shopping from the store. Or um, you can order the book through the farm, but you can also order it on Amazon and it's out in Kindle and it's available through all bookstores. You might, depending on where you are, you might have to order it, but it is available. It's in that whole pipeline. Um, there's also JaneLeeRankin.com, which is more the writing speaking side of things. But either way, you're going to get me. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, we're not that big. So either way. <laughs> There's only right. one person. Well, no, there's more than one person behind the curtain, but it's all okay. the same curtain. It's always me, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not always, always me. Thank goodness. <laughs> not always me. <laughs> I have a really beautiful team. So, yeah. Oh, so that's good. Always me, but yes. All right. Well, readers, I have reached my destination and I leave you with this quote of the day. Only those who dare to fail greatly can ever achieve greatness. Robert Kennedy. Until next time, do have a fabulous day. From a true sapphire, Pamela L. Henderson. Cheers. Thank you for listening to All Roads 65 Max Radio with Pamela Henderson. Join us every other week on Tuesdays, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on BBS Radio Station One. And please visit allroads65max.org and become a volunteer or sponsor and be the change you want to see in this world. With your help, we can make a difference in our society and uplift those who so desperately need our help. Thank you for tuning in.